What is the future of liberalism from 2022? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Matt Bufton. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Matt Bufton. After graduating from the University of Windsor's Odette School of Business, Matt worked in marketing and project management in the insurance and software industries before returning to school to study political science at the University of Windsor and public policy at the University of Michigan. Matt co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has been serving as the executive director since 2010. He's also this podcast's executive producer. Matt, welcome back again to The Curious Task. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. And it's great to have you on. So Matt, as you know, as you well know, in each episode, we start things off with a question, go wherever the discussion and answers take us. Today, our question is, what is the future of liberalism from 2022? And this is pretty much going to be an update of the sort of state of the liberalism episode we did in 2020 together as our first recorded episode together, actually, now that I think about it. And I just thought it'd be fun to actually kick off and bring us back to that time This episode that we did together came out on January 1st, 2020, and the description of the episode we did together said, Alex Aragona talks with Matt Bufton about the future of liberalism and why it's not as bad as you might think. So very optimistic tone there, and in that episode, if folks go and listen, which I certainly encourage them to do so, you kicked off the discussion by essentially saying, with a very optimistic mood about it, hey, you know, the trend is ultimately in the world towards more liberalism in general. We see that in history, we see it now. There may be some blips, of course, and some bumps, but the outlook is overall general pretty good. In hindsight, 2020 back to 2020, I suppose we didn't see the major upcoming blips, did we? No, no, and it's funny looking back. I mean, January 2020, although, of course, we would have recorded that episode in 2019, but uh, how innocent we were and how little we knew about what was coming. Absolutely, and I thought on that note, it'd be very interesting to sort of revisit some of the issues that we either directly or indirectly touched on in that episode and kind of touch on them today to see if there's any differences in your thoughts or if you're what what you would echo and what you wouldn't and so on and so forth because as anyone listening knows the world's been through quite a lot uh, over the past couple years and quite a lot of different things starting right now as well so I'm just going to pick an issue and we could we could dive in just like I said sort of get get your general thoughts I want to talk about populism and nationalism first actually um I think in 2020, you know, there was sort of this idea, and I actually remember seeing a few articles like this too, that, you know, the sort of populist nationalist rise, a lot of people associate with Donald Trump, a lot of people, so there's things going on in Europe as well, that, you know, there there was a sort of uh, burst of nationalism, populism, that sentiment was still on the rise. But there was sort of also this sentiment, if I recall correct at the time too, and we sort of touched on this in the episode as well, that it, it had kind of like, not necessarily peaked, but perhaps reached a certain threshold. Um, in in my mind, I I still think that this is an issue, probably because of a lot of new reasons. But but we'll talk about that. That I would say has not probably reached its threshold. I think that this is not something that we can rest easy and and not think about. I think populism and nationalism is, is still very much here. But anyway, that's a general kickoff. But that's the kind of flavor I want to start with. What are your thoughts on populism and nationalism since 2020? Have your own thoughts changed? What have you observed, and so on? Yeah, well, I mean, I would agree with you that uh, in 2020, trying to look back, we were uh, you know sort of just after 
uh, one federal election. Um, you know, if there's a political party in Canada that bears the standard of uh, of populism, I think it's got to be the the PPC. Certainly, if we're talking about right wing populism, they had you know, lost the only seat uh, that they had in the Commons with Maxime Bernier. Uh, the results in the federal election, I, I think, fair to say, were well below uh, what certainly the people who were optimistic about the PPC were uh, were expecting. And for some of us who were concerned about some of the more populist uh, rhetoric uh, that was coming out of that party, it was sort of nice to say, okay, that does not have a big audience here in Canada. And, uh, and yet, looking back now at the uh, 2021 uh, fall election that, uh, that we just had, the PPC, I mean, they didn't win any seats, but they did a lot better and I've seen some polling numbers to suggest that their popularity has uh, has increased again, uh, you know, largely based on some of the positions they took during the pandemic that other parties were on the opposite side of. And you know, I'm not sure how much to a degree of, the, of those, if they are necessarily in themselves populist positions. I mean, they're against so a lot of the mask mandates and, and restrictions. Uh, personally, as a libertarian, I'm against a lot of those mandates and restrictions. I think people should make their own individual choices and we shouldn't have government trying to put, you know, one size fits all solutions onto everybody. But that freedom of choice rhetoric from some people on that side is also wrapped up in some stuff that is not so much about freedom of choice. I mean, there's a lot of people I think who would like to see private businesses be banned from exercising those practices. And of course, as a libertarian, I think if you want to start a restaurant or you know run a mall or something and say, we're going to ask people to wear masks and show us they're, they're triple vaccinated, that's well within your rights as a business owner. So yeah, where's the, the populism thing going? Is it going to go up? From here, it's it's a little hard to tell. Um, certainly, you know what's going to happen with Donald Trump. Is he going to run again in the next uh, election? I, I'm very uncertain whether that's going to happen. How is he going to do if uh, if he runs again? That's that's hard to say. And then we throw the whole situation with uh, with Vladimir Putin and what's happening in uh, in Russia. It's hard to hard to have any confidence. I think in what's going on. Right, and and I think like I is is it fair to say. That you would also agree that at the time people thought that whether it's the Trump style uh, rhetoric, uh, populism, or is the stuff in Canada with the PPC, a lot of people at that time sort of did write it off comfortably as, well, that was sort of like a little bit of a, a screech and now it's going out with not a bang but a whimper. But I think that bang at least is, is still around if that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think for people who were maybe you know conservative but concerned about the populism um, coming into the Conservative Party in Canada and the way that it came into the Republican Party, you know, late 2019, early 2020 was a, a really optimistic time. You'd had a couple of years later earlier, uh, Kelly Leach had uh, you know made a run for the leadership of the Conservative Party on a right wing populist platform and had done very poorly. Maxime Bernier, although he had opposed that sort of right-wing populism when he was running for the leadership, then, uh, you know, sort of starts his own party and, and falls into that position. They had not done well. And so things were going, I think, pretty good for those of us who were concerned about that sort of right-wing populism. But, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to know where things are, are headed from where we are now. Any uh, any um, 
I, I don't want to say predictions because you just said that, and I agree, it is hard to tell where things are going to go. Um, but any sort of thoughts on what the mind frame of someone who considers themselves libertarian or liberal should be uh, uh, going this way forward, as, as usual, sometimes is a temptation for people to say, hey, maybe there's a, a way to, you know, uh, build alliances with some of these people. There's uh, some other folks on the other side that are completely running away from screaming from, from all of this. Where, where do you think your sort of mind is on that when it comes to how the, the classical liberal, if you will, navigates the waters moving forward? It's really hard to say, so I'm, I'm hesitant to make any predictions or advice about what we should do. Um, but the question brings to mind uh, Steve Davies, who's been a guest on this podcast a few times um, and has done a number of talks for the Institute for Liberal Studies. And he's got a theory about a political realignment. He says right. the sort of the Western world and countries tend to go through a bit of a, a realignment of the politics and, and you know what, what the groupings are, what the dividing lines are, what the issues are that drive people apart and, and push them together. And, and he says that we're in the midst of one of these sort of realignments. Um, so if you, you know, he's in the UK, if you look at the voting patterns for Tories versus Labour in light of the Brexit issue, there's been some real changes there. Trump's sort of, you know, populism has, uh, is part of that realignment. And the last time I spoke to him on this, he said, you know, Canada is sort of lagging on this, that we are not falling into the populism that most other countries uh, Western liberal democracies we're sort of struggling with. And so you got to wonder, has our time arrived? Are we now going to be sort of addressing that populism in that in that sort of way? And, and one thing to look for will be the uh, the you know election uh, we've got coming up this summer in Ontario and, and see whether there's a, a surge. I think there's one or maybe a couple parties that could lay claim to, claim to that sort of right-wing uh, populist uh, mantle. Um, and now, according to Davies, there's a chance that what you will get is sort of what we would think of as the Liberal Party, which is, of course, is not a classical Liberal Party, possibly becoming the new home for people of a more libertarian mindset. Not that we would, of course, agree with those types of liberals on, on everything, but perhaps that would be sort of the best offer, um, as it were. But I don't think that's where we are right now. And it's a really open question to me is whether that's somewhere we end up in two or three election cycles or where things go. And that's a very interesting point. I mean, I will get back to some issues that I, I said at the time that you, you talked about in a second. But what you just said right there makes me want to jump ahead to the sort of the present category, too, because putting aside like electoral politics for a sec, I think it's fair to say that even in the intellectual sphere, at least at least in my experience. But again, you tell me if you see it the same way, that there is sort of that. Uh, political, let's call getting away from electoral, so let's call it like sort of like an intellectual realignment. I think over the last two or three years, I've seen um, exactly what you just said sort of warm up that this idea, uh, you know, um, it's called by some of the folks at Liberal Currents magazine, for example, like the mere liberalism idea sort of coming back that um, <clears throat> essentially sort of like a counter or like a, an alternative to like the bigger tent conservative libertarian fusionism or, you know, I should say conservative classical liberalism fusionism. Some people are sort of talking that sort of lingo when it comes to liberalism now that perhaps there's a bigger tent where you have more, let's say, progressive people on, on one end all the way down to perhaps uh, strands of the classical liberal tradition under its own big big tent again. Um, again, differences between 2020 and now on that. Do you think that's a valid observation I'm making where that sort of is happening in, in our sort of intellectual sphere world? Do, do you think it's much ado about nothing, what I'm saying? On that intellectual side, does that support and go parallel with the electoral side, do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're very much tied together. I would say right now that is maybe a hope or an aspiration more than a description mm. of uh, of what's going on. Um, and so for people who want to look at um, sort of the, you know, the relationship between libertarianism and conservatism, and a lot of people, and you and I would be included in this, have some concerns and some reservations about that. But it's hard to deny that historically, there's been some overlap. There's been some cooperation there. A lot of it coming out of a sort of Cold War mentality. And this would, again, would be what Steve Davies would say was one of the major political cleavages was how opposed you were to, you know, communism, and socialism and favoring, you know, a liberal capitalist sort of sort of system. And that clearly put libertarians and conservatives on the same side, if not necessarily, you know, in the, in the same tent. Um, but they were certainly, you know, of fellow travelers, say, to to an extent. And it's interesting if you look at that, to the degree to which political conservatives would cite people who consider themselves libertarians as sort of their intellectual um, you know, influences. I think people like Milton Friedman, uh, people like Ayn Rand, who, of course, didn't call herself a libertarian, but most people look at her and say, yeah, she was a libertarian. I mean, Friedrich Hayek potentially the most influential sort of, uh, or at least one of the most influential intellectual figures in what we could call sort of late 20th century conservatism, he wrote a whole article entitled Why I'm Not a Conservative and sort of disputing that label. And yet many people on that conservative side would look to him as an influence. So there's at least an interpretation to say that libertarians were a relatively small part of the political scene and yet provided a lot of intellectual fuel for many conservatives in that sort of Reagan Thatcher uh, milieu. Is that going to happen? Could that, could that happen? Will that happen going forward? I mean, it's certainly possible that the sort of modern libertarian thinkers uh, will now be more influential on the political parties that are more on the left because it's easy to imagine that a Trump Republican party is not going to be all that sympathetic to some, some libertarian thinkers. But we also can't take for granted that libertarians will continue to have this outsized influence, right? It's not a guarantee that one side or the other has to look to our intellectuals as a, as you know, a source of ideas and inspiration. And it's possible we're headed for some time in the political wilderness. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just because I think it's interesting to get this on the record because you've also written about it before that as far as your your personal opinion, regardless of what we could describe uh, of what we see happening, it seems like your thought has always been like, at the end of the day, that's all great. Uh, people should just, or I guess we, if, if the royal we is in the sense classical liberals from your perspective, should just give ideas to those who will take them and not worry as much about the sort of uh, labeling too much of the intellectual alliances or really trying to put a finer point on that. But of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's always seemed to me, seemed to me to be your stance and thought on this. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's classical liberals, libertarians, whatever we want to call ourselves. We have some sort of set of ideas that we think will contribute to, you know, better governance, better public policy. And I think that we certainly should be very happy to have anyone who has the ability to implement those policies do so, because I'm under no illusions that a libertarian party is ever going to win an election and have that chance. You know, there's an argument that the best possible situation to be in is to have a sort of a swing position where both parties are sort of competing over those votes and trying to make policies that would appeal to some broadly uh, classical liberal or libertarian voters. So that's the best situation to uh, to be in, and we should be very happy if and when we can be in that situation. But I don't know whether we will be going forward. Fair enough. Shifting gears a little bit then, 
I want to talk about immigration. We've talked a lot about on this podcast, not you and I, but I meant we as in the podcast. You know, we've had discussions on open borders. Obviously, that's a that's a that's a if it's not the libertarian stance, it's certainly close to it. Um, again, this is one of those things that uh, didn't seem to go away with uh, with 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 the the good old Trump uh, presidency. I think this is something a lot of people looked at, uh, especially with the sort of uh, you know kids in cages scandal and all that kind of stuff. Things that people were rightly outraged about. I think people still in their minds often tethered that to sort of the the Trump administration per se. But I think now we have a Biden administration. We also have. Uh, you know, some some different crises in Europe, which we'll talk about probably later in a sec. But generally speaking, um, on immigration issues and open borders, I think it's fair to say that, uh, li- you know, libertarians, classical liberals and so on, I made some traction there. But uh, how optimistic are you in general moving forward? And again, uh, how fast or slow have things, things moved in your mind since your since what you saw in 2020? What have you seen changed? Are you still optimistic, pessimistic? Uh, you know, especially with things like the national conservatism sort of on the rise in the states, this rhetoric still here, immigration, open borders, and so on. Again, your your feelings and differences between 2020 and 2022. Where where are you at with that? Well, I, I certainly feel like open borders for people like you and I is again one of those sort of aspirational positions that you know we might philosophically like completely open borders, but what we're really arguing for to try and convince people that we're talking to is more open borders, and that's something, and definitely not you know more closed borders and, and reducing those uh, you know number of immigrants and raising barriers to immigration. At least in the Canadian context, this is something I think I'm actually probably. Uh, fairly optimistic on. We you know, have maintained the position in Canada that there is not a political market for you know, hardline anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric. Now, of course, there's a party and, and some politicians that uh, that take a pretty skeptical view towards immigrants. But if we're looking at the major parties in Canada, they're all pretty much you know pro-immigration. And so we look at a couple of recent events, um, significant ones from immigration, the fall of Afghanistan in uh, in the fall, uh, you know, there were efforts to bring um, Afghan refugees here. And I think we would probably agree that we wished more had been done. They'd made it easier. They brought in more people. Mm-hmm. But we did you know, bring in some people. And there was certainly the incentive for the politicians seemed to be to say they wanted to bring in people. And I don't think that there was a Canadian politician of note who sort of stood up in the House of Commons and said, you know, no, we're not going to bring these people. We shouldn't bring these people into our country. So that's nice. And we're seeing the same thing in terms of uh, what's going on now in Ukraine, that uh, there's a sort of general public willingness that I think goes across party divisions to bring in refugees to the extent that we can from Ukraine to allow people to come here. Again, I think you and I are both going to say it it should be sooner, it should be more. I read a thing last night that said they were going to take two weeks to implement some new sort of special visa for Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war. I wish it didn't take two weeks. I wish it was the kind of thing they could have a two-hour meeting and, uh, and announce this process. But I haven't seen any politicians standing up and saying, you know, we don't want those Ukrainians here. They should stay where they came from and, and solve their problems there or or whatever it is and, and try to pass it off on, onto some other countries. So I think that Canadian voters, the Canadian public has a large desire to sort of have immigration. They're pro-immigration. And that has been maintained even through the pandemic. And that was something I worried a little bit about because there have been times in the pandemic where it's well like, 
are people from other places dangerous? Do they carry diseases? Uh, you know, borders were closed for a long time. And yet we seem to have, I'm hoping that we're sort of coming out of the pandemic now. And it seems that general positive view of immigration among Canadians broadly has maintained. That's an excellent point. And you know what? I, you mentioned the pandemic. I was going to jump right into it, but I'm just going to make sure we, we slot in our break before we do that, actually, before we roll off onto all that. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Vincent Geloso, Joe Aragona, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Matt Bufton today. So, Matt, right before the we took the break, I stopped us on jumping right into COVID-19 because I figured there probably wouldn't be an easy place to slot that in too quickly once we got going on it. So let's just get into that right now. As far as immigration was concerned and sort of outsiders of Canada, at least, were concerned, you were saying that, you know, especially with the government restrictions and the type of political climate around uh, the COVID-19 issue and the health measures they were taking, you were starting to get worried about whether or not some of that sentiment would start creeping into immigration overall is what I was getting from what you were saying. But now, if you don't mind, I'd like to hear sort of your thoughts more expanded on that, not just as far as the health uh, consideration and, and, and relation to immigrations, but COVID, COVID-19 in general. I mean, as I was saying before at the beginning of our episode, and uh, you know, in January 1st, we were not thinking about going through two years of government lockdowns, unlocks, circuit breakers, circuit boards, whatever the heck they called a bunch of those things and so on and so forth. We're in, we're out, restaurants open, restaurants closed, masks on, masks off, all that great stuff. What are your, let's start with your general thoughts on how you feel about the, the the state of things today when it comes to things like civil liberties and so on and so forth and a retrospect on how the government handled things. Of course, I know you're not going to say it was perfect, we, so we shouldn't waste our time saying they weren't the best on it. But again, you know, on the one hand, you have some people saying there was overreach. Other people say they didn't do enough. As far as all that relates to sort of, again, the trajectory for liberalism, how, how do you feel about what we just went through effectively? <laughs> Uh, not good, Bob. Is that the line from uh, the Mad Men uh, meme? Um, yeah, I think that the pandemic has done you know some interesting things, had some interesting effects, and, and we're going to be thinking about this, dealing with this for the rest of our lives, literally. And, um, and I think there's sort of two broad categories of, of uh, you know effects that I'm interested in, and one is the what I would just call abject failure of so many of our state institutions. Mm. I I mean, so many of the restrictions that we had in Canada were justified by the need to protect our healthcare system. Of course, we've had, you know, a quasi state monopoly, maybe even just a flat out state monopoly on healthcare in Canada for our entire lives. Um, And uh, you know, the, the system seems so fragile that when you look at the number of people that were in hospital that were in intensive care uh, in cases where we were being told everything had to shut down, you know, these didn't seem like, first of all, large numbers relative to the populations that we were looking at. 
and certainly, you know, we were doing this with Omicron in, in December and January of just past of concern about, you know, hospitals not being able to keep up with the surge of patients. And of course, at that point, we had almost two years for the government to prepare and right. adapt. So it's easy to say for April 2020, well, nobody knew this was coming. How could we have possibly been prepared? But maybe be a little bit less generous when you get to December 2021 that, you know, they should have known this was coming. There are things that they should have done. So which way do we go with that? Do we sort of look at a broad uh, revamp of, uh, of our healthcare system and figure out what went wrong and try to redesign institutions? Maybe that happens. And if that happens, I think it's probably good. Certainly, I would be you know, biased towards having a large uh, set of public, uh, sorry, private involvement uh, in healthcare. And that can look a bunch of different ways. I mean, it's not just the pure market system that I think actually, you know, would have a lot of benefits, although is kind of verboten in Canada. But you could also look at all sorts of systems closer to what the Europeans have with, you know, state funding, but more private delivery. So which way does that go? Or do we just end up like throwing more money? So we have higher taxes. We throw more money into a system that uh, that isn't working very well. And we don't know that it's going to work very well next time. And I think you can carry this on to so many of the other things. You know, our school systems right. did not react well. Very few parents were happy with the way things were uh, were handled. Do we get reform on education or do we just get more money thrown at the problem? Uh, looking at sort of even just basic state functions like law enforcement in uh, in Ottawa, where a lot of people looked at what happened and said, well, you know, we're not even able to enforce laws that should be fairly commonplace, probably. Um, and the, you know, the Ottawa police uh, force was viewed, at least in Ottawa, certainly, as completely dysfunctional. So if we're talking about a state that can't deliver health care, can't deliver education, can't deliver basic law and order, how functional is the, the state that we rely on for so many of those basic services? Right. And, and as far as the future of this is concerned, it seemed to me that and optimistic isn't the right word, but I'm going to work through this so that I at least articulate what I'm trying to get at. There were a lot of people that obviously said that were more classical, liberal, libertarian, what have you, uh, during the pandemic that obviously they said, yes, yeah, this whole thing's terrible. So they were not happy people. But there there was some kind of tones in certain conversations. People said, you know, in an odd way, this might show people or demonstrate to people. Obviously, it's terrible that has to happen this way, but nevertheless, if it does, demonstrate to people and show people, as you said, how fragile some of these systems are. Maybe people, when it comes to the school system, for example, will be pushed to sort of that sort of awareness breaking point where they're like, hey, you know, this kind of thing must not go on. Or at least there, as you said, there should be some radical reforms or or what have you. As we seem to be coming out of this, and as far as the, the future of quote-unquote liberalism is, as we're talking about, how do you feel that trajectory looks? Do you do you feel that um, if you did feel that way, is it, is it too optimistic to think that people would want radical change? Do you feel people sort of settling back into their norm, or do you think this sort of kicked the door open for more discussions of the kind you were having about you know alternative school programs and so on and so forth? Where, where do you think the we we go after this uh, as far as getting beyond the pandemic when it comes to schooling, healthcare, so on and so forth, and those kind of discussions publicly? Yeah, I am not really optimistic. I was, as many people will know, I was a pretty optimistic person, uh, you know, back pre-pandemic. Um, now I think uh, think much less so. Um, you know, I haven't. I've seen. I saw a lot of complaints about the way that schools were um, 
handling you know problems and and that you know, trying to educate kids in a time of uncertainty and crisis but i haven't heard a lot of discussion about any sort of substantial change it's you know well we'll get some masks for teachers it seemed like it took them two years to like look at upgrading the ventilation systems right, in yeah. schools. And you'd think that, especially with the money that was being thrown out back in 2020, right? you'd think that, you know, uh, upgraded ventilation in, you know, a few thousand government owned buildings should have been a real no brainer. So, yeah, unfortunately, you know, I'm, I don't see calls for reforms. It, it seems almost like people are like angry with the way things are and unhappy with them, but not actually demanding or expecting any change. And, uh, you know, look at things like I mentioned policing, uh, the problems with the Ottawa protests. You know, I think one thing that we're going to see, and I don't like this, you probably don't like this, but we are going to see, I think, a much more militarized uh, Ottawa in terms of, uh, you know, access to uh being able to walk up to the government buildings, um, you know, it's what we have in Ottawa is very different than what's in Washington D.C. And I expect, if we have American listeners, I expect many of them do not know just how different that is. That uh, up until very recently, yeah. you, 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 you walked, and I could just right like in, in any second yeah. decide to go up and just go put our hand on Parliament or whatever, like literally. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, you know, the prime minister's office where he sort of does the work is just a building next to the sidewalk and you could go and put your hand on the building. I imagine if you tried to put a hand on the white house, you'd be shot 20 times. Oh, you wouldn't get close enough. <laughs> get, a, get a hand on there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you would see, you know, a couple, if the prime minister was there, you'd see a couple black SUVs sort of waiting outside with some guys who looked like they were probably you know, with the RCMP or something like that. I think it's going to look very different, you know, five, 10 years from now. I'm not sure if we're actually going to see any real benefits in terms of avoiding the kinds of problems that, uh, that we saw, but it's going to be, I think a very different mood in this city. I think we'll see more men with guns uh, walking around uh, down by, by parliament. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, You know, I'm not sure quite what the solution should be. Maybe it's to do nothing and uh, and write this off as a one-off, but that's not what I think is going to happen. So I think we're going to see some really substantial changes, and I, I don't think they're going to be for the better. Right. And, and when you when you contrast sort of what happened in Ottawa, uh, specifically on the issue of, of policing and, and moving forward with that sort of thing and so on and so forth, um, you know, largely people would say, and I don't want to get into the politics of the protest itself, I'm just trying to chart the picture for another question, um, which is basically that, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, that that was largely sort of a, 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 a right wing protest, if you will, is what people would say, whereas many of the things that happened recently in the States in the last couple of years, especially when it came to uh, certain protests um, and, and uh, certain riots and so on and so forth, were largely like left wing concern, if you will, when it came to anti policing sentiment and so on and so forth. Um, the reason I brought that context for is to say that I think here is an interesting case where um, the recent convoy protest, again, being looked at as a right wing sort of protest, you now have people who would be on the quote unquote left wing, at least I'm hearing on the radio and so on and so forth. These are now the folks calling for more law and order, more security. This can't happen again. All that to say, uh, I guess that's another sort of stage set for the classical liberal libertarian so on and what have you, to to be sort of, again, in, in between that pincer, I guess, right? We got sort of left and right wing populist nationalists, law and order people, apparently, too, depending on the flavor of the issue. And, and we're sitting here saying, yeah, it'd be great if we didn't militarize uh, uh, the main street in Ottawa, right? 
Yeah, yeah. There, I think there are a lot of people who 18 months ago were saying defund the police, uh, specifically in our city in Ottawa, who right. are no longer fans of, of defunding the police. Um, and even if you, you know, what defunding means has lots of uh, lots of various interpretations. And a lot of people were actually making arguments for sort of reallocating and, and you know, making different services, mental health services, public safety in a way that is not, you know, sort of armed police officers. I think a lot of that sport has dried up and it's interesting sort of a mirror that during the Black Lives Matter protests, there were these uh, claims and I didn't go to Portland. I don't know what was happening in Portland at the time, but there was this idea that Portland had this zone that police could not go. The protesters had completely taken over and they were ruling it. And a lot of uh, commenters on the right were saying, you know, the police need to go in there and bust some heads and sort of. They were uh, saying this is an occupation, an illegal occupation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and now we, we saw sort of the political inverse of that right wing protesters, left wing people saying, yeah, police got to go in there and bust some heads and, and get these people out of there. I mean, the thing that really shocked and, and dismayed me was the appetite for people to comment uh, publicly comment that uh, that the protesters should have their children taken away which to me is about one of the worst things that you can do to, uh, to any parent. It's not going to be great for the, for the child. And in, except in cases of really clear-cut abuse, and I certainly don't think taking your child to that protest was abuse. Maybe inappropriate. Reasonable people can, can discuss that. But the idea that those kids would not be so much worse off if they were taken away from their parents and put into the foster system, is something that I don't even know really how to address. Those kids are better with their parents for whatever their parents' flaws we might think that they are than uh, than in the the foster care system. And thankfully, I, I don't think any of them ended up there. So I'm I'm happy about that. But a lot of people were calling for it, and uh, that uh, was not a thing that made me you know uh, happy or or optimistic about where we might be going as far as political tribalism and polarization in this country. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. And and the thing is that, you know, a lot of people would say that when it comes to left-wing protesting, quote-unquote, uh, when you have the right, quote-unquote, commentators saying things, I mean, you know, I think reason reasonably so, I can say that a lot of that often, as you said, sounds like very uh, uh, rabid, you know, take away their children, like, you know, we got to go investigate these people at their workplace sort of thing. That's what you'd hear. Uh, or some people would say traditionally it's from like sort of the quote unquote right wing sort of commentary. We heard the exact same kind of stuff when it came to the convoy, you know, even in the aftermath, people are talking about, you know, basically punishing people, taking away their licenses, taking away their livelihoods and so on and so forth, because, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to drive their truck, which is their source of income or whatever it is. So, again, I think back to that where lowercase l liberalism is concerned, I, I definitely think that should leave the lowercase l liberal or someone with liberal values like quite concerned from both ends. Yeah, yeah. Those of us who did not want the police to go in with uh, guns blazing, I'm uh, using guns a bit metaphorically there, uh, but people who didn't want the police to like rush into either of those protests uh, and, and had sympathy, sympathy for at least some of the demands of the protesters in both of those situations. I think we might be a pretty small political minority. Yeah. There's a lot, lots to work on there. And and I'll just tie that that point off before we move on to a couple other things. Um, with, with, again, like, w- would you say that you yourself has sort of had a different mind on, on that in 2020 versus 2022, where the state of the right versus left sympathies as far as police and law and order were concerned? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is something I haven't spoken to anybody who saw that sort of coming. The idea that in that 18 months, I, I think is sort of the time frame that that we're looking at. 
um, that there was this real swing from the people who were, you know, defund the police are now like, we need, we need a lot more policing and, and this shouldn't happen. That surprised me. And uh, now I'm worried that that's a case where, you know, maybe two political uh, opposite tribes will get together and say, well, the one thing we can agree on is we need a lot more police in our streets. And that's not something I want to see. Right. And speaking of things that it seems both sides can uh, agree on even more now, um, I wouldn't say optimistic is probably the right word because I don't want to misframe the issue here. But uh, we were definitely uh, maybe not necessarily on the episode itself, but you and I had talked, especially around that time in 2020, uh, about sort of the state of, of government spending and so on and so forth, fiscal issues, let's say. Um, and of course, I, I would certainly not say in 2020 we were living in a utopia of fiscal conservatives, that is to say, on all ends of the political spectrum. But but nevertheless, uh, one thing that sort of I thought to bring up here is the fact that both the quote-unquote left and right in both the United States and Canada uh, at all different levels of government, state, federal, and so on, of course – save for some rhetoric here and there that is clearly designed to just win a couple votes and uh, get some sound bites on YouTube. Um, it seems like since that time and since we've gone through the pandemic, uh, the idea that a lot of these uh, things have become, whether it's police, but especially with the health system, have become excuses for new bureaucracies, spending bonanzas and so on. I think that's that's quite concerning as well. Is that That's probably another thing I would say that you and I both both did not see coming uh, in, in 2020, that we would have to deal with sort of that traditional fiscal conservative discussion again. And maybe we shouldn't just go spending billions and billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, well, I'm, one thing that's going to be interesting to see is, uh, you know, I think we are going to see demands that uh, you know, more spending on healthcare, more spending on policing, uh, potentially more spending on education. Where's the money going to come from? Because I remember back in 2015, writing to my liberal uh, MP, who was the candidate and then was, was re-elected, because I'm, I'm in Ottawa South, and we should always uh, elect uh, members of the Liberal Party here. But uh, saying I was concerned about Justin Trudeau's plan to run a $10 billion deficit for the first year that he was in office. And then, wow, to have a just a $10 billion deficit now, I don't even know what it is for the year that we're in, but the, the spending is crazy. Um, you know, it's just money being thrown out the door. I don't think we're seeing a lot of good for it. Right. Though, if we had seen some sort of massive investment in our healthcare system and we saw the red ink on the balance sheet, but we said, well, you know what? We all know that the healthcare system is a lot better than it, uh, than it was. We'd have something to show for it. I don't know what exactly we have to show for all of the money that's been thrown out the door in the past two years, except for the inflation, which is starting to come in. And that could be a serious problem in years to come. Right. And and let's say, not saying I'm saying, but let's just say for the sake of, of this next point here, that we agree that, hey, maybe, you know, the government should have spent some money, uh, you know, during the pandemic. You know, I'm not going to go through all the issues now. And again, those listening, I'm not saying Matt and me actually say that. But, but let's say one can make that argument. It's interesting that a lot of the rhetoric has now shifted to, okay, moving forward, we have to spend all this money. So now we've gone, it seems like a lot of the rhetoric has shifted from we're in this crisis, we have to spend this money. Now it's like, okay, uh, given that that just happened, here's all the other great things we could start spending money on. Like it seems like, you know, again, aside from some parties and those that will rhetorically try, and try to say that, hey, I'm against spending, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, 
a 1% reduction on a $100 billion budget isn't necessarily the kind of things you and I are talking about. <laughs> so, so again, I think that's a little concerning too, that moving out of the pandemic even, we're seeing that there really is no, no brakes on that train, I don't think. And anyone who considers themselves libertarian, classical liberal, even left libertarian, right libertarian, whatever, anyone that would even be close to that label is always concerned about a big state spending on whatever it is. So uh, yeah. that's quite concerning. I mean- yeah, I, I would think uh, we're at a point now where even some people who are you know, politically pretty cent- – economically pretty centrist have got to be looking at some of the spending and uh, first of all thinking, you know, how long are we going to be paying this off? And also are we able to back back it off? Because as soon as you start spending money, then there are people who see it. They want it to keep coming. They expect it to uh, to keep coming. And uh, and it's not just a thing where you, you crank a lever up and money pours out and you crank the lever down. Shutting off that spending is going to be hard. Um, and I expect that we will see structurally higher spending on all sorts of things for, for many years to come as a result of what we've done in the past couple of years. Right. Shifting gears to another issue right now, it's a very sensitive issue, obviously, the horrible things happening in Ukraine with the Russian invasion and aggression against that country. Um, I And again, I'm not obviously going to start getting into predictions here or get into like, you know, uh, battles or war strategy or anything like that. I mean, we're still in the middle of this. It's March 4th when we're recording this, and it wouldn't be our place to get too much into that kind of thing, especially not in this episode. But there's one point I want to sort of take out of that, and it and it's that... I don't think it's fair to say that uh, libertarians, classical liberals, and so on, and those who had optimism for sort of uh, the future of liberalism, if you were, were being flippant per se. But I think there still was a generally, again, optimistic attitude about, yes, you know, there's going to be uh, states misbehaving and and and, uh, and spending money on things that we wish that they shouldn't when it comes to the military and so on and so forth or some certain military operations. I mean, a lot of libertarians, classical liberals, and we've had them on this podcast too, have voiced concern and condemnation for things like the war on terror that never seems to end and how unnecessary a lot of those kinds of things have, have been. But um, for, for us to have sat there in 2020 and talk about a state invading another state uh like like we're seeing now i don't think that was on uh the bingo card if you will not not to be funny about it i think i'm being quite serious like i think this is this is very different than the kind of uh, liberal optimistic tone when it came to foreign relations and foreign affairs i mean even there were many people optimistic from the russian perspective that even though they had to play their own geopolitical games it would not come to something like this so again thoughts on sort of the the world order, if you will, because I think there was a liberal optimism about that, save for many bad things that would happen. But but here we are, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a few weeks ago, you spoke with Andrew Smith, who talked about capitalist peace theory, du commerce. And, uh, and I think in the modern context, that's often uh, known as sort of the golden arches uh, theory of peace, and that countries with McDonald's don't tend to go to war with each other. And there were a few exceptions. I think perhaps the NATO bombing of um, in, in Serbia in the in the 90s was a, an exception of that. But by and large, it held true. Right? We were looking at you know countries that once they reached a certain level of economic development and and growth and globalization did not go to war with each other. Now, of course, there were still wars happening. And as classical liberals, we were concerned about that and looking at ways to speak out about that and, and, and address that. 
but it seemed like that was where the concern was. These sorts of uh, things uh, where either, you know, a war on terror sort of situation or, uh, you know, a big state going into a, a much smaller state where the existing government was clearly bad. So, you know, uh, I think we're probably safe to say that the war in Iraq was a big mistake, but at least it was clearly going after like a bad guy. Right. And that was the kind of you know uh, thing we we're looking at in terms of foreign policy and wars. And now with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, it seems like something out of the past. I don't know how this is going to end. Uh, hopefully it ends soon and hopefully it ends as well as it can. But it's not going to surprise me if what we're looking at is, you know, another few decades of Cold War because, you know, and that might be the best situation, right? There's all sorts of nightmare Armageddon scenarios that we can imagine is the best thing that Russia sort of takes half of Ukraine, falls back. What happens to all the sanctions and things? You know, we have really sort of isolated Russia in the hopes that they will just withdraw. And if they do, then perhaps we can just restore those connections. But if they don't, and I'm not optimistic about the idea that they will, I feel like Russia is going to go back to being to us what it was to maybe our grandparents in the 1950s and 60s and just being a you know, very different place that is cut off from much of the rest of the world. And are we looking at another 30, 40 years of sort of a new Cold War? Right. So again, as you said, like, feel like a lot of uh, folks in the classical liberal libertarian circles would say that and, and in, a, in a critical fashion, too, that we have to sort of get out of this, you know, Cold War paradigm type thinking and so on and so forth, uh, because that's in the past and it's causing a lot of other issues or, you know, maybe perhaps mental blockages on certain issues, some would say. But but honestly, like you said, the fact that a, a new Cold War paradigm could be introduced is obviously quite troubling for folks that kind of want to move on from that Cold War paradigm of, of the 20th century, whether it was because of fusionism and people don't like that project the way it turned out, or it's just because people think there's other priorities to think about. Um, but again, as you said, we might be reintroduced to something similar, obviously not the exact same thing, but something similar. So that is certainly very concerning. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like maybe we're going to you know, be diving back into Cold War thinking. And I suppose we'll have a right authoritarian government in Russia as opposed to a left authoritarian government. And so that'll be a little bit different in ways. But the the big you know, sort of fact of this isolation, a stop on the sort of trade and commerce and globalization that we think promotes peace and stability, it's a real concern. Mm -hmm. And that also does sort of, I think, bring up some concerns for the uh, liberal sentiment and liberal values when it comes to just sort of like the, the cosmopolitan nature of people's thinking. I mean, I've, I've talked with you sort of aside in, in different, we, we, you know, we might be concerned to different degrees or, or have different descriptions of things, but I think it's fair to say we're both generally concerned if people take this sort of situation to the point where they confuse anti-Russian state and anti-Russian government sentiment with anti-Russian sentiment. I think that's another concern as well. So that's another culture cultural problem for liberals, at least I would think, but you tell me your thoughts. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's a problem because of the way that the Russian state is sort of entwined with, uh, with everything, right? So there's some things that we clearly don't uh, want in terms of, uh, or at least I would think we would clearly don't want in terms of responses, right? So if your neighbor happens to be Russian, you don't want to be not speaking to your neighbor or, you know, protesting outside their driveway for a war they have nothing to do with. You might have a Russian business in uh, in your town that has, has really no connection. 
But then you look at something like the banning of Russian uh, flights uh, into uh, certainly Canadian airspace, and I think this is true of many uh, other countries. The Russian flights are no longer allowed. I do see a justification for that. Uh, Aeroflot, the the Russian flag carrier, is 51% owned by the government, so it is a sort of an arm of the state. And so I can understand the reason for you know stopping them as as a sanction to try and respond to the uh, Russian aggression. But that does mean that, you know, ordinary Russians, uh, perhaps any Russians, are going to have far, far fewer opportunities to travel and meet with other people and be exposed to people from other countries. We're not going to have a chance. My, my mom and sister visited Russia about five or six years ago, just as tourists on, on vacation. I find it completely feasible that never again in my life will it seem like a reasonable thing just as a tourism exercise right. to go to Russia. Love to be wrong on that, but I don't think I am. Right. And but on the cultural point, too, I'll just press that further and say, like, you know, there were a lot of people, for instance, calling, uh, you know, for, for things when it comes to Russian academics and Russian students to either be ignored, deplatform, not allowed in, you know, reject this, uh, like that kind of thing. That's the kind of stuff that concerns me specifically. I'm not saying that it's going to go completely, you know, this direction or that direction. It's really hard to tell where any of the stuff could go. But I think it's very important that the liberal recognize you know, beyond the economic implications, there's a lot of cultural implications too when it comes to something like this. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, the issue of the Russian students uh, who are studying in the West is interesting. I mean, a certain number of those people uh, are going to, I think, probably be from families with uh, with ties to you know Putin's regime and the the Russian government. Maybe it's appropriate to sanction them, but maybe and ask them to you know go home. But maybe that's a way of sort of, you know, talking to them, seeing what their feelings are, because there are, you know, a good number of Russians who are opposed to the war. Maybe that's a way to sort of, you know, try and and have talks and collaboration and, and try to put pressure on the Russian government to stop what it's doing. But I have no idea how how effective that might be. Right. And one thing I think I want to want to end up on on our uh, wrap up point, and maybe it'll just be quick because we just say, yeah, um, but uh uh, sort of towards the end of our our episode that we recorded together in the future of liberalism again in 2020, um, you you were sort of saying, hey, the future of liberalism. There's a lot of optimism to be had, but it's but it's not something that uh, that can just be wound up and let go. You didn't say it in those exact words, but you basically said we're on the right trajectory, but it's not a trajectory that propels itself, kind of thing. Um, but I but I know sort of at the end of that conversation, you emphasized the optimism part and sort of added that second part in as sort of oh, and let's just remember, kind of thing. Um, if we're sort of to pose that same question here about again, the future of liberalism is more of a wrap up. Well, would you emphasize that second part now more than that first part? Where there has to say there's less optimism now, and perhaps we have to put the hat on that basically says this stuff certainly will not just be wound up and let go. As a matter of fact, we might need to go wind it up again, sort of thing. If, if you see what I'm saying metaphorically, I think that the emphasis might switch, not necessarily your answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a great point. That uh, with the sort of long-term prospects or medium-term prospects. Of, of liberalism now more in doubt than they were two years ago. The, I think that the work of those of us who are interested in trying to nurture and encourage that becomes so much more important. So we've seen the frailties in a government healthcare system exposed. To me, it is now all the more important 
to try and reform that system and make it better because we've seen the effects that, that can have in a, in a time of, of crisis. And the same would go to to education. Um, you know what's going on in terms of military. There's going to be a big push to uh, increase military spending in Canada, a lot of other Western countries, and they're going to be convincing arguments that this is needed to counteract the threat from Russia. And I would be sympathetic to some of those arguments if we're talking just purely guarding against uh, defense. But when you spend money on Things like the police and the military, there's always the chance that they're going to be used once they're built up and used offensively in ways that classical liberals would not uh, would not approve of. So I think our work is going to become all the more important because the future direction, the future destination is now that much more in doubt. And with that, I think we may as well just coast on into our, our formal wrap-up. You know, we've talked about a lot. We we're just starting to sort of full, go full circle, I think, and put a finer point on our explanation of the question. So let me just prompt it further and, and ask you officially as our last question today. Then what, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what your thoughts are on the future of liberalism as we sit here in 2022? In other words, if there's just one, two, or a few takeaways you wanted someone to leave with, if anything, from this conversation about the future of, of liberalism and how we should think on that, what, what would you like to leave people with? The first one is going to be two points. The first one just relates back to what we were just discussing in terms of you know the work of building a liberal cosmopolitan tolerant society is now that much more important. And I think that we're going to have to be a bit more deliberative, uh, deliberative, deliberate, and a bit more conscientious about making sure that we do those sorts of things, even just basic civil society functions, that it's so easy during the pandemic to just stay home, not see anyone, not going to do anything. Mm. And now that momentum is built up for a lot of people. It might be easy just to keep on doing it that way. So really encourage people. I mean, I think civil society is so important in a liberal society. So whatever the just voluntary associations that you did pre-pandemic, and they don't have to be political in any way, um, try to get back to those. I, I think that's really important. And the second one is that I think we are going to be dealing with this for the rest of our lives. There are all sorts of things that we will not expect. We cannot see now that are coming. And when you know you and I are, are old men and, uh, and looking back at what things are like in 2040, 2050, 2060, I think that we are going to look at things and say, okay, that's a result of the events in the early 2020s. And so, you know, some of those might be good, but I think a lot of them have the potential not to be good. And we're going to want to try and keep an eye out for those things, even though we can't predict them and try to respond to them as best we can when we do see them. I think we'll leave it there then. Matt Bufton, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks, Alex. It was fun. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.